Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we explore stories which we think are important but are often underreported in the media. And I'm delighted to be joined by two excellent guests. We have Miranda Green, who is the Financial Times Deputy Common Editor. Uh, she's also a prolific a political commentator and pops up on lots of things. You see her doing lovely films on this week. And she's also a former Lib Dem advisor. Hello, Miranda. Hello. And I'm also joined by Tom Hamilton, who is a former Labour advisor to Ed Miliband and is co-author of a book with my good self called Punch and Judy Politics, an inside guide to Prime Minister's questions. Hello, Tom. Hello. So, Miranda, can I come to you first for your underreported story on the train? Well, that's right. So there was a headline-grabbing story this week, which was Chris Grayling deciding to take the East Coast mainline, the troubled East Coast mainline, back into state control. But I uh, recently made a, a short documentary for the FT about why we privatised the railways in the UK in the first place and why it might have lost so much public support. And I think that story behind the story is incredibly interesting, actually. And I managed to talk to some of the Tory ministers who were the kind of architects of the privatisation plan, you know, to find out why they did this slightly crazy thing of separating the tracks from the train operating companies, from the infrastructure. Um, and, and, And by doing that, to try and get to the bottom of why you know, in the 80s and indeed in the middle, in the early 90s when it was done, all the political energy was on the right and was there for this idea of, you know, privatise, get energy into the moribund state-controlled industries. It felt radical. It felt really radical and it felt like shaking up. You know, British Rail was, we should forget, a kind of byword for, for sort of sleepy uh, management. And failure. And failure, indeed. And... Then now all the p- political energy has swung back the other other way. You know, Jeremy Corbyn's plan to renationalise rail is insanely popular across the age groups, across social classes, across voting intention groups of the electorate. And why is that? And actually, I got Malcolm Riftkind, who was Secretary of State for Transport in the run-up to the 92 election, explained to me that, you know, the reason there was no clear plan in the Tory manifesto in 92 is because they couldn't agree. And he said that he, as Transport Secretary, was, in his his words, locked in mortal combat with the Treasury over how they were going to do it. And, of course, I think it's really interesting that a lot of policy mistakes in this country are down to an overpowerful Treasury Mm. and essentially overruling experts who know their policy area in other departments. So I think there's lots behind the headlines on this rail story this week. And, you know, as somebody who, I mean, is now obviously associated with the Financial Times, business community, fiscal responsibility, etc. Do you think re-nationalising the trains and possibly other utilities, do you think that is sensible? Do you think that is the way to improve things? I don't think it is for the reason that I've just mentioned, which is you'd just be giving it back into the control of the Treasury all over again. And in fact, what had happened before the early 90s was that the railway system was completely starved of funding. There was no investment and we were falling badly behind. I think what would be a good idea is to um, look at ways of having genuine competition. I mean, Michael Portillo, who was also a transport secretary at the time, also told me for my FT film that, in fact, the railways, it's phony capitalism because you don't really have competition. So I think it does need to be restructured, and I actually think Chris Grayling's move this week is healthy 
Because if you can have state-backed bodies competing with the private sector, we already have state-backed bodies from other countries running bits yeah. of the British Railway I mean, system. that's the great irony about Absolutely. our situation now. We have lots of other countries' governments sort of running our railways. Absolutely. So actually, if we had proper competition, there would be room for sort of some mutuals, for some state-backed organisations to get involved, and then you would actually have better competition. But I think taking the whole thing back into state public ownership... Um, it's not so much that it would be expensive to do, it's that afterwards you'd be back in the same problem, which is you'd be trying to fund it out of general taxation and you would be running down the infrastructure that's so important to everyone. Tom, as somebody who um, has been working for the Labour Party until quite recently, in fact, it's, it's almost about a year since that famed uh, Labour manifesto uh, was published, stroke, leaked, the best leak in the history of time in terms of media coverage. What's your take on, on this um, policy and do you think... Do you think Labour has got it right? Well, I was interested in in what you said about Malcolm Rifkind and the um, the fact that the the Tories wanted to privatise it for ideolo- ideological reasons, but had no idea how to do it, and therefore didn't come to an agreement. It's sort of reminiscent of um, of where we are now on <laughs> Brexit, with um, and again something that may well end up in a mess that satisfies nobody in the long run. Um, in terms of where Labour is, I mean, it's it's another good example. There've been two this week of. Um, Labour policies from the Labour Manifesto being adopted or at least they can be portrayed as having been adopted by the Tories. There's, th- there's that and also fixed old bet- betting terminals having their uh, the, the maximum stake put at, at £2, where you know what was portrayed as a an overly radical, overly left-wing manifesto turns out to contain various policies which even the Conservative government thinks are probably the best thing to do in the circumstances. They might have to be dragged kicking and screaming to do it, but they don't see an alternative. And it's sort of, it's very difficult to portray your political opponents as mad, foaming, you know, communists if you're doing more or less the same thing yourself in in lots of areas. And, and, and they're right to do so. And Tom, where do you think um, the sort of public is on this? Do you think that the political zeitgeist is changing on this because you know nationalization was seen as, as so 1970s but the 1970s seems to be back in fashion for a lot of people yeah i mean i think you've got to be a bit careful about this because um it's it's one of those issues where yes there's huge support for renationalization if you ask people about it that's not the same as saying that it's a major motivating factor for most people in how they vote so um i don't think it's it would be in most people's top 10 sort of things that they really care about but they probably would quite like the idea of a, of a re-nationalised railway and it's interesting you see the Tories even now using and I'm not even not even joking about this they use the fact that British rail sandwiches were a byword for poor quality in the in the 70s and 80s as a reason in itself why privatisation was a good thing and you know I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility to have a, a re-nationalised railway that still serves decent sandwiches. Or bad sandwiches. Or bad sandwiches. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did some um, phone-ins over uh, the Christmas period when the the train ticket prices always go up on, on the beginning of January and it's always a sort of a, a media story. But what was so interesting is so many people phoned up to say, of, of all different political hues, that they were absolutely sick and tired of how the train services were run, particularly people involved who had to, you know, endure a southern rail. Um, but also, I remember somebody rang up and said it was actually cheaper for her friends to all fly to Spain to meet each other than to get a ticket from Manchester to come down to, to London. So, I mean, is this a sign 
Miranda, of market failure as well in terms of it's not working really for anybody, but particularly the consumer? Well, actually, it's really interesting because the consequence of angering everyone is actually to do with a, a, a decision to make it more progressive, <laughs> which is there was a, a concerted effort to pile more of the costs onto the commuting public who were in work and coming in and out of London because 70% of the journeys are in and out of London and in the southeast. So, you know, it's a bit like the tuition fees row, which is another good example of exactly what Tom was talking about, which is how do the Tories move on a policy where they have really slagged off uh, the Labour opposition as being way too radical and socialist and then being forced to actually go some way towards similar policies because of public anger. You know, they're going to have to change something about the tuition fees regime, having completely rejected Corbyn's idea that it was was, was causing yeah. a lot of public anger. But again, the tuition regi- fees regime, just like putting up rail fares, is actually designed to be progressive because you're charging the people who can afford it. Yeah. But which has a terrible political consequence of angering everybody, yeah, whether they're no. travelling or whether they're a student or not. It's a bit like politics. You you, you kind of know you're sort of doing it pre- competently when you literally everyone hates you, basically. <laughs> you can't put your pants in. Um, Tom, we're going to move on to your underreported story. Uh, and this is around media regulation. Yeah, I can't imagine why this has been underreported. But um, this week, um, we've seen the second of two votes in the House of Commons against, in the end, against um, continuing with the Leveson Inquiry, part two of the Leveson Inquiry, which was, um, the inquiry was set up after the phone hacking scandal um, back in 2011 now, long time ago. Um, And it was always intended that the uh, the second part would look at relationships between the media and the police, would look at corporate governance failure within various uh, newspaper groups. And the reason why it didn't happen straight away was because there were various uh, legal cases ongoing and they didn't want to prejudice those cases. Now that those cases are finished, there's no reason not to continue except that, as the media says, well, there have been all these criminal cases now. They've all been dealt with. We've all changed. We don't need to have it anymore. The whole point of Leveson 2 happening after the cases was that it couldn't happen until they'd finished. So they've managed to um, to argue that there's nothing to see here. There's no need to uh, to have an inquiry anymore. And um, and what's interesting about that is that the the government has has now been willing to ignore promises that were made in 2011 by all the main party leaders at the time on the grounds that well everything's changed. We've got different leaders now. It doesn't matter anymore. Um, and and we've got um, we've 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 got a, an entirely reformed media at the same time as there's plenty of evidence that we haven't really got a particular reformed media. But in terms of, um, I think it's safe to say it feels like Leveson is sort of dead in yeah. the, the water. But I mean, I was very closely involved in 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 the the Leveson inquiry um, when I was working for Ed Miliband. But it was almost like things have moved on so quickly. The Leveson inquiry almost feels a bit. It was a bit out of date anyway, because if you look at where technology is and how we acquire a lot of our media through unregulated sources, such as the internet um, and all of that kind of thing. But how do we ever, Miranda, create a system of independent self-regulation that everybody has trust in? Because the where I have sympathy, and I, I did not always agree with what hacked off um, who are the organisation that can campaigns for for tighter press regulation is that it does still feel like it's editors marking their own homework which is the sort of problem well 
I think actually that in Fleet Street, people are quite scared now. Um, so I think something has changed. I think you're absolutely right that all the kind of momentum that built up around the first stage of, of the Leveson inquiry, which was to do with a lot of anger about the Millie Dowler case, um, you know, police and and tabloid reporters in kind of collusion. That feels so much in the past now, and I don't think they'll be able to sort of revive it, as you quite rightly say. But I think the problem is there was incredibly heavy-handed policing, um, you know, where individual reporters were kind of, you know, got the knock at 5am and all the rest of it. And then some of the kind of regulatory things that have been proposed have been so punitive. I mean, this idea that um, even if a case goes against a complainant, when they're taking a newspaper to court, that the news news organisation pays all the costs. For example, I mean, you would be literally putting people out of business. But the- and, I, and I think I think the you know it's I think it's good that you referred to hacked off because I think it's one of those cases which are interesting in politics where the campaigning organization has lost its own argument by campaigning too hard yeah i i I would agree with that but i mean just to come back on the because this is um famously in the section 40 which was um and it, it was a sort of carrot and stick uh the stick as you just described was very punitive cost the carrot was join the, uh, a regulator, an independent regulator, and you could be spared a lot of the cost. But but people felt it was um, it was too punitive. But well, well, also, and they felt it was a matter of principle as well. To be fair, because um, being forced to join a regulatory body um, <clears throat> where those in charge of it are sort of appointed by the state, you can argue that that's just no longer a free press, and that was the view of most editors. Um, And I think the argument was lost at that point, in fact. I mean, there are clearly lots and lots of things wrong with the British media. Um, You know, it's not okay to say that we'd go back to, uh, you know, the the practices that caused all these criminal cases uh, that have have now finished. And I mean, Tom's right is a pathetic excuse not to go back Mm. to it because it was put off for the very good reason that things were in court. Now they're not. but, But I think I've changed my mind on this because... In you know, what way? I, were, you, were you more sympathetic and you're now less I was, sympathetic? I was way more sympathetic to those who wanted to tighten regulation. And I have completely lost sympathy with them because they do not seem to understand why it's important to have a free uh, a free press. And also, I think, to be honest, a lot of the driving forces behind it are uh, rich individuals who don't want their private life in the papers, and you can't actually set a regulatory no, system for the media based on that, whether Max Mosley wants people to... I think that was to... a big perception problem. I mean, one of the things, just I suppose just to give the, the counterpoint, and I think this is such an impossible uh, circle to square, I mean, in some ways, the press, I think, have definitely changed their attitude since Leveson. However, the Bob Kerslake report into the Manchester bombings and the response showed that, and this was actually hugely underreported in the press, is that actually um, newspaper reporters were doing all the bad things like pretending to be doctor, you know, try, you know, trying to, you know, get information from the victims at a very, very disturbing time. I mean, you could argue even this Meghan Markle debacle with her dad and the press shows that actually a lot of people do think the press is is still, um, uh, was it a feral beast, as, uh, as Tony Blair <laughs> That's right, we all had T-shirts printed. That's <laughs> Feral right. Feral But it's a very difficult... And actually, what, one of the other, I think, legitimate arguments, and this is something that Unheard was sort of set up to do, was 
the press can be very, uh, you know, um, closed-minded about what it wants to report. Um, it can. There's a lot of group think within press. You know, you can argue we have a very free press, but in some ways we have quite an undiverse press in terms of richness of thought and oh, opinion. Oh, quite so. Yeah, quite everything so. like that. That's to do with pl- a plural media environment though isn't it that's that's to do with encouraging more people to start more media organizations like the, like yeah, this one for yeah, example yeah yeah absolutely well thank you very much for that i'm sure this is a topic that we will come back to because i'm sure it's not going to go away but now we are going to move on to um a very uh, little special discussion about prime minister's questions and um the book that tom and i have written called punch and duty politics an insider's guide to prime minister's questions obviously tom um is here because he helped write the book with me, but also is encyclopedic uh, knowledge bank about Prime Minister's questions. And um, and Miranda uh, also worked in Parliament for a long time and and had that unique experience of preparing uh, leaders for Prime Minister's questions. It's a very unique experience. Now, Tom, I want to start with you. You know, what was your conclusion of the? I mean, I, I sort of know the answer to this, but why? You know having gone into it with basically everybody saying to us, we hate Prime Minister's questions, it's awful, it's childish, what would you say to counter their view? Why does it still matter? Well, I mean, I, I worked for the Labour Party for 10 years, so I'm quite used to uh, to, to working on things that people hate. But um, <laughs> I uh, I think that the importance, um, the importance of PMQs isn't just in what you see for... 30, 40, 50 minutes now uh, with John Burko extending it on a Wednesday lunchtime. It's also about all of the work that goes into it and all of the results of that work that are that are separate from that. So PMQs is it's a way of seeing whether our leaders can uh, can cope with the pressure of having their arguments tested in combat on the day. But that also means testing whether all the government's positions can stand up to scrutiny because the Prime Minister can be asked about anything. And that forces, uh, well, it forces A, the Prime Minister to take control over everything that's going on because uh, he or she has to understand what's happening in his or her government to to be able to answer questions about any aspect of it. Um, But it also makes the the opposition make sure that its positions are robust as well, because it can't just be a system of the leader of the opposition shouting about things that it doesn't like and complaining. It also, you know, you have to have positions that stand up themselves so that the prime minister can't come back immediately and point out well you haven't got a policy on this either or you can't afford to uh, to pay for what you want to do to deal with this or last time you were in power uh, you made a complete mess of it so stop complaining about to us about it all of those things um force the opposition to think quite seriously about um about making it making sure its positions are robust across the board and so it's a it's it's an important sort of testing ground yeah. for both sides in terms of what their messages are and what their strategies Miranda would you agree with that and also where does where do the rules of the smaller parties come into it the third parties I mean now there's really two there's the SNP and of course the Liberal Democrats what, what's your take on that so I have to say, I rather disappointingly, maybe for listeners who are hoping for a punch-up, I, I completely agree. I think it's really important to have this sort of stress testing 
of the government in a very public forum once a week, no escape, defend yourself. It's a fantastic mechanism for protecting uh, democratic accountability. Um, I think, I mean, when I was involved, I had a couple of years um, helping prepare Paddy Ashdown when he was Lib Dem leader. And at that point, and who were the other two leaders on the other side? Well, it was Hagen Blair. Oh, so you were vintage. It was vintage. It was sensational, actually, because, you know, you had Blair who was you know, was at the height of his powers, this is the late 90s, um, between sort of 98 to 2000 that I did this role. And also he had that landslide behind him. So it was this phenomenal leader with charisma and intellect backed by, you know, this huge number of Labour MPs cheering him on and who at that stage were completely backing him, by the way. And then there was Haig, whose party was in disarray, uh, you know, a terrible low ebb period for the Conservatives, but Haig had such wit and was such a master of his, uh, you know, he, he really kind of did have the house in the palm of his hand sometimes, even though he was working with nothing. You know, he, they had no decent policy positions to defend, but he was very good at argumentation and he was fantastic at using humour. So it was a kind of wonderful duel to watch. And was it we, hard for you yeah. guys to slot into that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was completely disastrous, really, because except that in those days, the media was very different. So it was almost usual to have a bit of PMQs on the six o'clock news that night, which you don't get yeah. now automatically. So if you could do a halfway decent question, somebody somewhere on some broadcaster would pick you up, you know. But you're right. Now the SNP get the guaranteed two questions and the Lib Dems just have to bob up and down to get noticed by the speaker. But... Um, you have to be really, really agile because, of course, the leader of the opposition is likely to go on the most obvious questions to put the government on the spot. So you've got to think of either something original on that story to get yourself clipped in um, or you've got to go on a completely different tack. And actually, when I was working for Paddy, it was when I mean, he was very involved in trying to influence British foreign policy and through Blair, American foreign policy on intervening in Kosovo, right. for example. So actually, I would say eight out of ten of our questions by and large, were about foreign policy and the Balkans and, you know, the responsibility of Europe to act to defend um, those who were being slaughtered by Milosevic. And actually, our game was usually to try and kind of persuade Paddy that occasionally he might remember domestic politics. Yeah. Um, but it was a great period. It did feel like a kind of vintage era for PMQs. Yeah, although one of the interesting things quite recently is that until the last couple of weeks when... Um Jeremy Corbyn has asked about Brexit. The fact that Labour hasn't been asking about Brexit has left a bit of an opening for the third party, um, Ian Blackford before that, Angus Robertson, to ask about, you know, the, the most important issue in British politics, which was not being covered by by the two main the two main party leaders at PMQs, and you know, they were able to carve a bit of reputation out for themselves just by the absence of of that on, uh, on from the main parties. And so, if if we think that sort of Haig and Blair was the the sort of vintage era of prime minister's questions, how do we compare that to our contenders today? <laughs> Where would you pitch me and Corbyn, Tom? And you, you, you did some work for Corbyn for a short. Yeah, I worked for I worked for um, on, on Jeremy Corbyn's prep team for the first few months of um, of his leadership. I mean, I think. Um, they are, in in some senses, quite a good match for each other. They they're neither of them particularly good at at thinking on their feet. Um, May tends to be quite well briefed, but not particularly flashy. Corbyn tends to stick to a script, and his questions are, I would say, more obviously scripted. All all leaders are are scripted, but Corbyn is more obviously scripted than most leaders that that we've seen. Um, and and so they sort of, you know. 
they, they are they are roughly even, but not in a particular, you know, sort of a, a first division sense rather than a premiership sense. But having said that, I mean, the, I think the the slight frustration of it is that because May, because neither of them are that great, I think if one of them was exceptionally good, the other one would be in real trouble. Yeah. But that's not what we see. So you know, it would be quite relatively easy, I think, to to nail Theresa May to the wall on a lot of stuff, as Corbyn has done in the last couple of weeks, actually, on Brexit. But what what's interesting is, I think, um, I mean, the reason we called the book Punch and Judy Politics was that every new leader, as they are facing the dispatch box with a huge amount of fear and trepidation issues uh, a really sort of wimpy statement going oh let's change the tone of politics now let's try and do it before Wednesday at 12 o'clock preferably and uh, David Cameron famously said you know let's sort of put an end to punch and Judy politics and then of course he at the dispatch box he was a very good performer very confident but he was also a massive bully at the dispatch box as well and his nickname was um, Flashman but what's interesting about Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn is that I think they have actually quite successfully lowered the temperature in uh, Prime Minister's questions both by being quite underwhelming and Jeremy Corbyn introduced a sort of people's question time where he would say you know I've got a question from Brenda from Pontefract and um, nobody felt they could jeer Brenda from, from Pontefract but do you think that we've now got a very boring PMQs or do you think that when new leaders come the heat and the passion and the wit and the theatre will come back into PMQs? Um, it's a slightly unanswerable question, but nonetheless important. Um, we, I think because of social media, have seen a complete change in the way it's used um, in the, the Corbyn team having tried their Brenda from Pontefract strategy um, and doubtless having had very good advice from Tom in the, uh, in the early days. Not, not particularly. <laughs> they've, they've actually settled on something that works extremely well for them. It kills PMQs, but it's brilliant Labour campaigning, which is you use your six questions to knock off sex segments of the electorate that you're targeting with your message of you know opposing government plans on, on whatever it is. And you've then got six clips that you can distribute by social media. Yeah. The slight um, frustration of that is that, um, I mean, that, that does work and you can put those clips out and you know ever see whether the questions got defeated by the Prime Minister on the day, which sometimes they did. But actually, if you want a really good clip for social media, then winning at PMQs gives you a really good clip. And, you know, doing doing it just a bit better um, is is also a way of, uh, well, you still get to use it on social media, but you probably get on the news with it as well. Well, also, I think that, you know, your argument in the book that this... Uh, kind of fulcrum of parliamentary theatre performs a really useful function for our democracy, you do start to dissipate that if you're just using it for yeah. clips on yeah. Facebook, you know, because you're not really stress testing anything any anymore. Yeah. You're just segmenting the electorate in the depressing way that all political campaigning has now turned into segmenting the electorate. And I think sort of to, to broaden the discussion out, one of the... Um, I think frustrations that a lot of people feel about politics right now is, well, first of all, we know how well, it's, it's conducted on social media. We know it's angry. There's a level of sort of unhinged cruelty about it at the moment. Arguments are made in short, 280 characters. People are very disillusioned with their political leaders ac- across the, the the spectrum of politics right now. And one almost feels like the, the great British tradition of debating an argument in real life, standing up, being able to have the the character, the intellect, the, the wit and um, the, the conviction of your argument. It, we're, we're almost slightly 
losing that in and that's I suppose that's my kind of personal concern and I think in the same way that everybody gets very stressed about new technology coming in you know social media has been great for politics in many ways but I would hate us to lose that essence of what you know in 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 our leaders it is so you know politics is the art of communication I mean what what do you think about yeah that? and and also I think you know just in terms of you know we've talked about stress testing arguments but it's also you know Tom was right to say that May and Corbyn are very lucky that they oppose each other because a stronger performer would kill in either one of them and actually can you imagine Donald Trump having to go through this once a week of course not we've actually got something built into our system which ought to prevent somebody who shouldn't be in politics becoming prime minister because they wouldn't be able to cope with it. Um, and I do think for that reason, it's it's sort of worth defending. I mean, you, you mentioned Trump. Interestingly, um, Americans love prime minister's questions and, you know, it's it's watched very, very religiously in America. And as you say, many, um, you know, friends, colleagues, political uh, people say, you know, I wish we had something like your parliament because we never have that chance to I think stress test is a really really good way of phrasing it and it, I suppose looping back to our conversation about the press I think as much as you can definitely concede there's lots of childish bad behaviour there's lots of braying and farmyard animal noises going on <laughs> and things like that and mooing and all that sort of thing but you know we don't want our parliaments to be sanitised cowed well-behaved yeah, places. If you watch, I mean, the, one of the reasons the Americans, I think, like it so much is that if you watch C-SPAN, which which does cover PMQs, but also covers um, what's going on in Congress, if you watch a normal day of deliberations in the Senate, it's incredibly boring. And um, compared to PMQs, you know, it's not it's not that interesting to watch. The fact that um, PMQs isn't isn't as in in my view, and I think. All of our views not as good as it used to be. Um, that's like life, isn't it? Generally, yeah. it's not as good as it used yeah, to be. For now, yeah. for now, Tom, let's be hopeful. Well, yeah. that's, well that's right. Yeah. I was going to say that actually, because although at the moment we have two people who, for various reasons, aren't the most exciting performers, there's absolutely no reason why the next leader on either side, whoever that might be, um, couldn't be better. Because you know, if they can, if they can win at PMQs regularly, that's going to be a massive string to their bow. So. You know, when we've seen people stand in for for Jeremy, we've seen Angela Eagle do it. We've seen Emily Thornbury do it. Both of them in their in their different ways, actually. You know, very effective PMQs yes, performers. And you know, not that I think he's likely to be the next prime minister, but actually, David Lidington did a pretty good job against Emily Thornbury last last time last time he was out, just by being a little bit more sparky and lively and and taking on the arguments in a way that Theresa but May doesn't. Interestingly, really. mentioning Angela and Emily um, is an important reminder that a lot of people think PMQs and and rightly so. It's very noisy it is very aggressive that a lot of women don't like it but actually a lot of the best performers of recent times have been women at the dispatch box including Harriet Harman as well oh she was great fun to watch yeah yeah she she really had it and she she I mean we worked very closely with her she put a lot of time and effort into it and of course while I disagree passionately with her politics Margaret Thatcher was an excellent um, performer and I would actually argue Margaret Thatcher was the mother of modern PMQs as we knew it because before she became Prime Minister in 1979, you could outsource questions to other ministers. But she took the decision that as Prime Minister of her party, as a leader of her party, she was going to answer all six questions. And actually that gave her 
um, an ability to control the rest of government because she said, look, if I'm the person standing up at the dispatch box, I need to know what's going on. You need to tell my officials and my advisers. And she took it very seriously. John Whittingdale told us this fantastic story, which was even after years and years of being at the dispatch box, this formidable opponent, her legs still shook and she still felt incredibly um, nervous about it and it was a big responsibility for her to perform well at the dispatch box. I think there's an argument that PMQs, or the modern PMQs, has done more to sort of consolidate the power of the Prime Minister in Downing Street than, than anything else in politics just by forcing the PM to, um, to know what's going on everywhere in a way that wouldn't be the case if, if she wasn't going to be asked about it. Um, final question uh, to you, Miranda. You, you, you had a, a, a thing about a, a big moment of drama in, the, in one of the exchanges, I think, between Blair and Hague. Let's end with your story about this is what you thought was one of the most significant, interesting moments in PMQs. Yeah, so there was an afternoon in which um, Hague took the very high-risk gamble of trying to humiliate Blair by saying that he rejected Blair's plan to get rid of the hereditary peers from the House of Lords. This was back in 1998. But Blair, unfortunately for William Hague, was able to then stand up and say, well, I think you've got that wrong because, in fact, your Conservative leader in the House of Lords has just been in Downing Street doing a deal with us and it's going ahead. <laughs> and poor William Hague, who, as we've discussed, was usually a master, masterly performer at PMQs, you know, you could see the blood drain from his face as he realised he'd been stitched up by his own side and humiliated and then had to go on and ask more questions and it was an extraordinary moment the whole house was kind of electrified by it and then for the rest of the afternoon it was chaos you know Haig had to fire his leader in the lords and they they, they of course went went ahead with this historic policy change to get rid of it all but 92 hereditaries from the house of lords let's hope one day they're all got rid of um but I mean, obviously, you can't hope for that degree of drama and substantive change all in one afternoon. But boy, when it happens, it's pretty fantastic to be in there. Well, thank you so much to my guests, Miranda Green and Tom Hamilton. Thank you for listening. And of course, you can buy our book, Punch and Judy Politics, by myself, Aisha Hazarika and Tom Hamilton, um, which is out this week. I um, hope you've enjoyed the podcast and do tune in next week.